0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at com. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. And man, if you're if this is your first time at Candeo, I want to just say again, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad and honored that you would join us this morning. My name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Candeo, and my family. And I moved here about seven years ago, shortly after Candeo started. And I've got two kids uh, who are here on earth. Uh, Naomi is eight and Judah is five. And my wife, Sarah and I, we will be celebrating our 13th anniversary uh, this August. And so for us, anniversaries aren't really that big of a deal. We generally don't do a lot for them. We will like write a sweet card to each other and maybe get something small, something like that. But we don't, we play play pretty low key. But several years ago, when we were probably when we'd been married, about seven or eight years, we looked ahead in the corridors of time and knew that our 10-year anniversary was coming up. And so we knew we wanted to do something a bit special for 10 years. A decade. We got like when you get into double digits, that's kind of a, a big deal. So we're like, hey, let's do something for our 10-year anniversary. Let's go somewhere. Let's take a trip. And so when we were kind of deciding where to go, we, we both love coffee and we love mountains. And we're like, well, where, where is there coffee and where are there mountains? So we, went to, we decided to go to Seattle. And the question you have to answer after you answer the question, where are we going? You have to then answer the question, how are we gonna pay for it, right? And so for us, we were like, because we utilize like, a, like a, a cash envelope system for a portion of our budget. And so we were like, how about this? how about at the end of each month, any cash that is left in the envelopes, like money we didn't use for food or household things, stuff like that, let's take that and put it in a separate envelope labeled Seattle, okay? And so we did that for probably, it was over two years, maybe two and a half years, every month, some months it would be a little bit, you know, a few dollars, some months it'd be more. And we just kind of store it away, you know, keep storing, keep storing. It was like squirrels, but winter lasted two and a half years. And so we just kept putting it in these envelopes until finally uh, we were like, we have enough. And so that night we got on the computer, booked the plane tickets, got the Airbnb, and then we just waited. Because it was going to be a couple months until we, you know, got on the plane and went. And I don't know if, if... You've experienced this when you've been looking forward to a vacation, but for us, it was, it was as though the moment we booked the tickets, for those next couple of months, it was kind of like we could endure anything. Like, no matter how annoying the kids got, it was like, we're going to Seattle. Like no matter how hard work was or any, you know, different things, even, even, you know, interpersonal conflicts, it's like, it's like, we're going to Seattle and I'm going with you, so we better work this out. Cause we want to enjoy our time over there. Like it was just kind of like thing, right? Where this kind of future hope tremendously impacted our present reality. Cause when we bought the tickets, like the minute we hit like pay, that guaranteed for us that vacation was coming. You see, we could endure anything seemingly because we had before us a future hope. Something that had happened in the past, we had bought our tickets, something that had happened in the past guaranteed for us a hope for the future that then totally impacted the way we lived in the present. See, you and I, can't avoid the fact that the way that we live today is pretty much entirely dependent on what we believe about our future. It just is, you can't avoid it. We live in Iowa, so the bitter cold of winter, right? When that polar vortex just inevitably comes in February, like clockwork, you're going, oh, but summer's coming. Like the falls, by the grace of God, hopefully will open this year and we'll be, you know, swimming, right? Or maybe you're in a job that is less than ideal, but you're getting through it because maybe you have that future hope of a promotion or a raise. Honestly, even for me, uh, my morning is dramatically impacted by what I'm looking forward to for lunch. I don't know if you're the same. If I have like a peanut butter sandwich, my morning doesn't go as well. I just can't handle the things that happen in the morning because I'm like, I have nothing to look forward to. Peanut butter sandwiches, no thank you. But if there's a good lunch coming, it's like my morning just seems to go much better. In Easter, what we have in the celebration of Easter is a past event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that secures for those who trust in him a hope for the future that should absolutely transform the way we live in the present. And if you wanna have this, ki- this kind of deep, lasting, enduring hope for the future that will sustain you through this life, I wanna show you four things about the resurrection that we need to know and embrace if we're gonna have this kind of resurrection hope. Four things. And those four things are that the resurrection is critical, that the resurrection is credible, that the resurrection is practical, and the resurrection is available. The resurrection is critical, credible, practical, and available. And we're gonna see these four things from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screen, so you're all good. The 1 Corinthians 15, first, the the resurrection, Is critical. Here's what the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. He said, now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, verse three, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection is critical. Here's what Paul says, of all the things that Paul could have said, I mean, Paul wrote a large majority of the New Testament. So Paul not only could have said a lot of things, he did say a lot of things, but when he's talking to the Corinthians, what he says is, hey, if you don't remember anything else I said, remember this, this is the most important thing that I have passed on to you, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again. You see, Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. It rises and falls on the resurrection, which means that for all the issues that maybe you have with Christians or with Christianity, and there may be a lot of issues. You may have had past events, you know, past interactions with the church or with other Christians that have left a sour taste in your mouth. You're like, I knew a Christian one time or I went to a church when I was growing up and they, they did this and they were like that and they acted this way and they treated me this way or maybe just Christianity in general, where you have these questions where it's like, well, what about this in the Bible? And what what about that? For all the issues and for all the questions, what Paul is saying is let the resurrection of Jesus Christ be the first and greatest problem that you grapple with. The first and greatest one. Because here's the reality. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then who in the world cares what the Bible says about sexuality? Who cares? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then who in the world cares what the Bible says about creation? Who in the world cares what the Bible says about God's design for, who, for human flourishing? Who, who cares about what the Bible says about money or the church? Who cares? Who cares about who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said? Who cares? If he didn't rise from the dead, then who cares? Now this isn't to say that the issues that you may have or the experiences that, you, that you've had in the past aren't, import, aren't important or maybe weren't deeply hurtful to you. That's not to say that at all. But what it is to say is that until you wrestle with the most important issue of Christianity, you can't wrestle with the other issues rightly. You see the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead isn't the answer to all of your questions and it isn't the answer to all of your problems. But whether or not he rose from the dead absolutely affects the answers to your questions and those problems. The resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ is of most importance. It is absolutely critical. And number two, the resurrection is credible. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verse three, it says, for I pass on to you as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. You see, Paul doesn't just say that Jesus died. Paul says that Jesus died and was buried. Now, why does he say that? Well, there are some who would say, well, Jesus' death wasn't really a physical death. It was more of like a spiritual death, like a metaphorical death, right? But Paul is totally doing away with any notion that this wasn't a physical death by not just saying he died, but that he was buried. He was physically buried, and if you had any questions after that, that he rose again, and not just that he rose again, but on the third day, Paul puts a timestamp on the resurrection that this was a physical event that happened in actual history. This wasn't some sort of metaphorical or spiritual resurrection. And then what we see in the gospel accounts, we're going through the book of John on on our usual Sunday rhythms. We're going to see in John chapter 20, that after Jesus rises from the dead, that Peter, which is the the name Cephas here in our text, that's the same name for Peter, which Peter and John run to the tomb. And what do they find? They find They find that the stone is rolled away, that there is no body of Jesus, but that the grave clothes are still there. You see, in the first century, when someone died and they buried them, they would, they would wrap them in grave cloths, kind of like like a mummy. Like, have that kind of picture in your mind. It's not too far off. They would wrap them in grave cloths. Now, why is it significant that, that the body was gone, but that the grave clothes were still there? Well, you could say, well, Jesus' followers just stole Jesus' body. But that's not going to work, because why would followers of Jesus who loved and respected him so much, unravel his body and carry him out naked. That'd be incredibly disgraceful now, and especially back then. And so his followers certainly wouldn't have disgraced him in this way, but then you could go, well, maybe it was like grave robbers just in general, and you go, who in their right mind would unravel a dead body who's been in the ground for three days? Like, why would you, why would you, Impose that kind of smell on your senses. Why would you do that? That makes no sense. Or you could say, well, Jesus didn't actually die, but he was just severely wounded, right? And you go, oh, then how did such a severely wounded person break free from such tightly wrapped cloths? How in the world does that happen? There is no natural explanation for the body gone, but the grave clothes present, other than the fact that, it's, that the resurrection actually happened. So then, not only did Peter see the grave clothes, but he also saw Jesus Christ with his own eyes. And not just Peter, but the rest of the disciples, including James, which is Jesus's own brother. Which by the way, you'll remember from John chapter seven, James was one of Jesus's brothers who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, you think about it. You've, you've got a sibling, right? And if, if you grew up with your sibling saying, like, I am the one sent from God, you're like, yeah, right. Like, I, I've, I know you. I've seen you. Like, you'd be very, very skeptical of your sibling making that claim. And, and James, in much the same way, was like that. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, was the Messiah. But now we have James having seen the resurrected Christ not too long after this writing in his own book that he conveniently titled James in James chapter one, verse one, he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why in the world would a skeptical sibling have such a radical change of heart if he didn't see with his own eyes the resurrected Christ, his resurrected Brother, So Peter saw him, the disciples saw him, James saw him, and not just that, but verse 6, over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. 500 brothers and sisters. You see, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so most of the witnesses were still alive. Maybe, Maybe you aren't aware of this, but this year will be the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And many of you can probably remember where you were at when you heard the news, when you turned on the TV and you saw the planes flying into the World Trade Center. for the people who would have been reading Paul's letter here, 15 to 20 years after the resurrection, to deny the witness account of the resurrection would be to us someone denying that September 11th happened. And you could say, well, I saw it on TV, but I didn't see it with my own eyes. And I'd be like, okay, well then go to New York and tell me where the buildings went. Like David Copperfield is great, but all the stuff he made disappear eventually came back. But you can go to the actual site like, and see it with your own eyes. And in the same way, there were plenty of people who had seen with their own eyes, the resurrected Jesus Christ who were still alive. Paul says some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. If Paul were making this up, there were plenty of people who could have refuted what he was saying and Christianity would have never gotten off the ground but it did get off the ground. You see, worldviews don't change overnight. Maybe maybe you didn't know this, but like worldviews generally change in very slowly over time, it takes a long time for the shaping of an entire worldview of large groups of people. But what we have in Christianity is the worldview of thousands of people who would have been skeptical of the resurrection. It's easy for you and I to think, well, I don't believe in the the resurrection because I believe in science, but those people would have been easy. No, not at all. Greeks and Romans didn't believe in bodily resurrection, nor would they have wanted it. And the the Jews believed in resurrection, but they didn't believe in individual resurrections, but in a resurrection of an entire group of people at the end of human history. And so Jesus Christ rising from the dead would have been a totally new category that they would have utterly rejected. But yet overnight, thousands upon thousands of people's worldviews radically changed. Those who were entirely skeptical and antagonistic toward a bodily resurrection all of a sudden changed their minds. And to this day, there is no explanation as to how that happened other than it must be true that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. The resurrection is critical. The resurrection is credible. And the resurrection is practical. Jump down to verses 13 and 14. So he's made the case for the resurrection. And then he says, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Translation, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is not alive, which means that Christianity is totally worthless. Now maybe for you, Christianity is a bit like a kind of self-help program. Kind of, kind of like a placebo almost where it's like it doesn't really matter if it's actually true so long as it helps me be a better person so long as it makes my life a little better so long as my kids kind of grow up to have good morals and they can be nice to people and and not jerks I want them to be relatively socialized right so I, I want them to grow up in the church and so whether or not the resurrection happened isn't really a big deal but what Paul is saying is that if the resurrection didn't happen then any sort of moral utility you may get from Christianity is totally worthless It's totally baseless because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then live however you want to live. Do whatever you want to do. You see, Christianity, if you you understand Christianity, it is not a call to prosperity, and it's not a call to self-expression. No, Christianity will often result in suffering and is a call to self-denial as we take up our cross and follow Christ, that because of our deep-seated belief in the resurrection of Christ, it will impact the way we live, which will look totally foreign to an unbelieving world. Which means that, quite frankly, to truly live as a Christian will often make your life harder, not easier. And then verse 17 and 19, he kind of keeps on this roll He goes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. You see, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then any hope that Christianity can give is as baseless and empty as an invisible friend to a child who is scared of the dark. Which is why Paul says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. This life of self-denial, as you put aside your own desires, but fix your gaze on the life to come because of the resurrection of Christ. That this life of self-denial, if there is no resurrection, totally worthless. Why in the world are you denying yourself? Like, get all that you can. But this life of like self-sacrificial love, that we love others sacrificially because God loved us sacrificially in Jesus Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why in the world love other people more than you love yourself? Love yourself. Do everything you can to make you happy at the expense of everyone else if Jesus has not risen from the dead. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then there is no hope beyond this life. And to live as though there is, according to Paul, is absolutely pitiful. If there is no resurrection, Paul Paul will later say in verse 32, then let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. But, verse 20, check this out. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. All of these things, if, this isn't, if the resurrection didn't happen, then this is worthless, this is worthless, your faith is in vain, the way you're living makes no sense, you have a pitiful life if the resurrection didn't happen. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, which means that our proclamation is not in vain but is absolutely purposeful. That because Jesus did rise from the dead, that your faith in Christ isn't worthless, but it's infinitely valuable. That because Jesus rose from the grave, that those who believe are not still in their sins, but have been forgiven. The weight has been lifted from your shoulders. That because Jesus rose from the dead, your life isn't pitiful but is purposeful because of our hope. Because our hope is not in this life, but in the life to come, our life today is not pitiful. Therefore, jump all the way down to verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, after all these things that he says about the resurrection, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you have received forgiveness of your sins by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you can have hope in this life because your ultimate hope is beyond this life. Which means we can have enduring hope because we live with the certainty that one day, all the sad things will become untrue. And because of the resurrection, we can live with the certainty that all the injustices of this world, all the oppression taking place, that one day the God who judges justly will come to avenge injustice. that because of the resurrection, death's stinger has lost its venom. Death still stings. Death stings intensely, but because of the resurrection, death doesn't have to sting eternally. Death's stinger has lost its venom. So in the midst of COVID and of calamity and of suffering and of sorrow, That because of this resurrection hope that those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. You say, what is the Lord's work? The Lord's work is any activity that you wouldn't naturally engage in were it not for your faith in Christ. That's the Lord's work any activity that you wouldn't naturally engage in were it not for your faith in Christ. Because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then live however you want. But because he has, we can excel in the work of the Lord because we have fixed our eyes on a future hope. Christian, talking to the Christians right now. Does your hope of eternity have any bearing on your life in the present? Or do you basically live as though this life is all that there is? Like instead of being hope-filled, when suffering enters your life, do you become hopeless? Instead of seeing the great treasure that is set before you of an eternity with God because of Jesus Christ, instead of seeing and savoring that treasure of eternal life, do you instead seek to try to accumulate and preserve every possible treasure you could have in this life, whether it's things or people? Maybe you idolize your kids or your wife and do everything you can to make sure that they last have your thoughts, have your feelings, have your actions been affected in any way by the reality of the resurrection. Now maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you haven't received the hope of eternal life by faith in the resurrection of Christ. Here's the good news this morning. Is that not only is a resurrection critical, incredible and practical, it's also available. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul is saying. He's speaking of himself. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me." the Apostle Paul, we think of the Apostle Paul, maybe you you envision him like enshrined in stained glass or uh, like the guy that cathedrals are named after, right? Like St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul wasn't always St. Paul. In fact, St. Paul in the early church was one of the most dangerous threats to the church. One of the most zealous persecutors of the church. He would go around grabbing men and women, putting them in chains, leading them off to prison or to be killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Which means that if God's grace and forgiveness could extend to someone like Paul, then God's grace and forgiveness can extend to someone like you. And not only that, check this out. This is so fascinating. Not only... Did Paul call himself the worst of sinners? He says that in other places in the scripture. But he also says that if anyone had a right to boast before God, it was me. Because I was the most religious of them all. You see, Paul's persecution of the church was actually because he believed that Christians were heretics. And so his actions were informed by a kind of self-righteousness that he believed he was doing God a favor. Which means that Paul did worse things than you've probably ever done for better reasons than you've probably ever done anything. Isn't that crazy? Like Paul thought he was doing the Lord's work. He thought, I'm doing God a favor. Look at me, I've been raised this way. I know these things. He was was extremely religious, incredibly self-righteous. Paul did worse things than you've probably ever done for better reasons than you've probably ever done anything. You see, Jesus doesn't just rescue us from our sin, but he rescues us from our self-righteousness. He doesn't just rescue us from all the bad things that we've done. He rescues us from believing that we can live in such a way apart from Christ that God will still be obligated to accept us. Well, I can just be good enough. I don't really need Jesus. I'll just live a moral life and then God will have to accept me. You see, you aren't so bad that you can't have God, but you also aren't so good that you don't need him. Sarah and I eventually did make it to Seattle and got a couple pictures pictures from, from eating at the fish markets to we drank a lot of coffee and from hiking Mount Rainier to exploring the glacier riverbeds of the mountains, as we looked back and compared the years of saving and the months of waiting, as we compared that to the experience that all of our anticipation and hope had been looking forward to, when we compared those things, three words came to mind, totally worth it, totally worth it. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. But as it is, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he has been raised from the dead, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ can have a future hope to live an eternity with him in glory. My question to you this morning is, do you have that hope? Have you received Jesus Christ by faith? Receive forgiveness of your sin and hope for the future this morning. Now maybe maybe you have received Christ this morning. The reality is that because his tomb is empty, that means that our hope isn't. Because his tomb is empty, your hope in this life isn't empty. Christian, be steadfast and immovable always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor for the Lord in this life isn't in vain, but you have a living hope that gives you a hope for the future that should impact your life here in the present. Praise God. Jesus Christ is alive. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you that you rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death, securing for us a future hope for those who place their faith in you that we can have the hope of an eternity with God. Well, Father, I pray that for anyone here who has not yet received Christ in faith, that Holy Spirit, you would you would stir within their heart a holy angst, a realization that the things of this life do not satisfy, that even their good works are not enough. Oh God, would they place their faith in the finished work of Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you, Jesus, for the salvation that we have in you. Pray this in your name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.